Welcome back, or if this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for being here. As you know, starting anything new can be a little scary. So thank you to so many of you that have been supporting me along the way and helping because it's really touched my heart to see how you've shared this podcast on your Instagram stories, seeing your messages, emails, and left a review. Those help so much. So thank you. And if you want to see some of the behind the scenes or keep the conversation going, you can head over to my Instagram, Amberly Lago Motivation. And if you find even a little nugget of wisdom in the episodes that you think someone else would benefit from hearing, please share it with a friend. That would help too. Do y'all believe in miracles? Well, after listening to this next guest, I can guarantee you, you will because she is a miracle. Her story is one of miraculous transformation. She went from living a life of addiction on the streets. She was eating out of garbage cans and in and out of jails to being a best-selling author. She's a wife. She's a mama. And she speaks across the country on recovery. And she offers tools, insights, and inspiration to all those who are struggling or even feeling hopeless. Her first book is called Shape of a Woman. I've read it. It's so touching. She shares how she healed her childhood trauma. She got sober and she completely transformed her life. So I'm excited to bring this next guest to you to the show. Welcome, Jen Elizabeth. Welcome to True Grit and Grace, a podcast designed to empower you to claim your resilience and thrive through life's challenges. I am Amberly Lago, a mindset coach, fitness expert, and best-selling author. Each week, I'll dive deep with the world's brightest thought leaders and elite performers to share tangible tools and practical advice to inspire you to keep your eyes on the prize and forge ahead. So get ready to conquer your fears, heal any trauma, lead with your heart, and elevate your life with grit and grace. Hi, and welcome to another episode of True Grit and Grace. I'm Amberly Lago, and I'm so excited to introduce this next guest because she is the definition of resilient. Thank you for joining us. Jen, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. My friend. Good morning. Good morning. How uh, are you? Best way to start a Saturday morning, chit-chatting with your girlfriends, right? Yes. Jen, Elizabeth, you are amazing and you are changing lives. I know you've definitely impacted my life. You have given me confidence actually to share my story on a deeper level through social media. I met you about, was it a month ago? Maybe two months ago. Yeah. And it was for National Sober Day. And our mutual friend invited me to go to this event And it was celebrating sobriety 
whether people go, you know, have been sober because they're recovering alcoholics or whether they're sober curious, which honestly, I didn't even know what that was, but I love <laughs> that people are doing it. I know. <laughs> yeah. And so we got there and you were the speaker. And as soon as you started sharing your story, I was instantly connected to you. And because a lot of the things that you have gone through, I have experienced too. And then everything, and I'll let you tell your story because you are amazing at telling your story. But I noticed even on your Instagram, and if you guys, if you aren't following Jen on her Instagram, it's resurrect me. Can you spell that out? Because it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's resurrection with a K. That, so at, that's right. Yeah. Underscore of underscore me. Okay. Yeah. Because I love the post that you did on recovering. You've just celebrated a year of recovery from your eating disorders or Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was people were commenting and it went viral. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's so many of us that struggle and we don't talk about it. And so you have empowered a lot of people to heal through their traumas by sharing your story. So Can you start off just by telling us a little bit about you and some of the things that you've gone through that have led you to write this amazing book that it's so amazing. And I just loaned it out to someone because it's so good. One of my sobriety sisters is reading it. So could you share a little bit of your journey just so people get an idea of who you are and how far you've come? Sure. I would love to. So my journey starts, I think, from birth. You know, I was born into a family that also suffers from mental illnesses and addictions to a mother that was unable to care for me and love me the way that a mother should. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not her fault, but, you know, of all the lessons I've ever learned, this is probably the most important is that it's not my fault either. Mm -hmm. I grew up feeling and being told that it was, you know, my causing that made her want to kill herself or made her so disappointed. She was, you know, I wanted her to love me so much, Mm. you know, I think we all want uh, that. We all want to feel loved, especially from our parents. And that causes deep shame. I feel (sighs) like when we don't get that love and, or like you feel like it was your fault. For sure. I mean, I would be searching the streets with the police looking for her because she was missing on a suicide mm-hmm. mission. How I, old were you when this? Oh, when this... seven, eight, 12, 16, mm-hmm. you know, no one ever sat me down and talked about mental illness. Mm-hmm. No one ever sat me down and said, listen, you know, your mom's in the hospital again. It's not your fault. These things, you know, we were not supposed to talk about it. And that's how I grew up where it was. And you know what a saying was when I grew up was hide your crazy and be a lady. That was actually something that I was told, hide your crazy and be a lady. And so when we had some crazy shit going on in the house, it was like, go to Sunday school and pretend like everything is okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that exactly. lead, that can lead you down a road of despair. I know it did for me and it certainly sure. did for you. Oh yeah. You know, shame is the beast, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, secrets and holding all that stuff in and a child trying to come up with explanations and figuring stuff out that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And you can't make sense of all that stuff. I just internalized it all, you know? Mm -hmm. And well, when I was like two and a half, we joined, my parents joined a religious cult. You know, my parents were lost Mm -hmm. and it's taken me a lot. It's been a long road to find so much compassion for where my parents were because I was, you know, abused in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But the woman I am today can tell you that my parents were lost. They were looking for answers, looking for someone to help them. And so this organization of people offered this, you know, wholesome way from the worldly temptations and the devil and all this stuff, you know, this safety nest is what they offered. So my parents took my little brother and myself, and we left all of our family and friends in California and moved to Alabama. Mm. And, you know, over the years, that situation became very abusive, financially, financial abuse, spiritual abuse, mental, you know, and then sexual abuse. You know, I was probably around four and a half or five when, you know, one of the elders had me come in his office and sit on his lap. And I was memorizing my Bible verses and, you know, he started playing with my hair and Mm. singing songs. And he told me that I was special and he did all the things that I never got at home. And And that is exactly, yeah. And you know what, that is you sharing that right now really takes me back to the time when I was about eight years old and the sexual abuse started because it was a very similar situation where you have someone that you think they're safe. Like Mm -hmm. you think that person is safe and that you can trust them. And then I wanted to ask you in your gut, did you know that something, did it feel icky? Did it feel like this can't be right when it first started? Because I was told how special I was. I didn't get a lot of attention. You know, my mom is an incredible mom. She loved me, but she worked two jobs. She worked a lot. So she wasn't there a lot. And my dad, he did the best he could, but he wasn't really around. He wasn't in the picture. My parents were divorced. And so now I had this stepfather who bought me toys and who played with me and made me feel safe. And gave me the love that I didn't really have. And then all of a sudden that took a turn and it was a similar situation to what you're describing. But did that feel right away? Were you like, wait a minute, this isn't right. Something's wrong with this. Not right away. No. I mean, I think I was just so young and it didn't feel weird right away, but pretty quickly those special times together Mm -hmm. turned into something very confusing and very terrifying. And I actually had moments where I would pee my pants if I oh. found out I was going to go be with him. Your body, yeah. your body knows. Your body oh. knows before our minds even can process things. Yep. Your body knows. And that is, wow, you would pee yep. your pants. Literally pee my pants. Yeah. Oh. And like you're saying, you know, before I even really registered what was going on, I just felt so much confusion and terror. And, you know, he knew I was a perfect target because I came from a shattered home, you know, Mm -hmm. and there was so much going on at my house with my mom and 
a multitude of other things. And I never told anybody. I just pulled my little Sunday dress down and acted like nothing happened. And in order to, you know, survive, I would drift off in my imagination. And that's where my coping, poor coping, but where my coping skills began mm-hmm. is in escaping pain and avoiding mm-hmm. reality. You know, I learned and I perfected that art. Mm-hmm. So throughout the years of my life, that's all I've ever done is search for ways to escape myself. Different ways, all different ways, eating and disorders, I, addiction, I, you know. I think a lot of people do that. And I don't think enough of us are talking about this because I certainly did the same thing. And mine at first was my escape was to do things to make me feel better. Like I became an overachiever and got straight A's and I was the fastest runner on the track team and set a state record. I became the best dancer at the dance studio. So my escape was my default was to go do something and to run because I would literally go for a run and that was my escape. And when I couldn't do all those things is when it led me into doing other harmful things that took me down a road where I wanted to die. And now I know you have the eating disorders and then, you know, the drinking and the drugs. How old were you when you started, instead of just thinking to, as your coping mechanism, to start to do and try other things to cope with your trauma? How old were you? So I was 12 when I first, when I became an alcoholic, you know, I was an alcoholic from the first drink for sure. You know, my alcoholism is not so much about how often you drink. It's about the obsession. Mm -hmm. So I was obsessed literally 24 seven with, with alcohol from the first drink. It was the first piece I had ever known. Mm. And at that point in my life at, at 12, I was becoming suicidal. Mm. I was having a lot of fantasies about just ending who I was. And I would lay, you know, in bed at night and just squeeze at my skin and till it was like red and bruised. And I just wanted to be somebody else, anybody else. Mm. You know, I felt so worthless. My mom didn't want to live for me. I was a filthy, dirty animal from my childhood. I felt very much a participant, never, ever felt like a victim. And that's what silence and secrets do, you know, mm-hmm. turns you. And so I believe that alcohol may have saved my life at one point. It serves a purpose. It served a purpose in my life, you know. But then as the story always goes, it ended up almost taking my life, you know. It works until it doesn't, right? Like, yes, it's a solution until it's the problem. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, because like you, for me, I remember when, you know, I drank occasionally, but I remember after my motorcycle accident and being diagnosed with this nerve disease, I was in constant pain. And when I was told it would be for the rest of my life, I remember when I took a drink and it helped with the pain. And I thought, wow, well, I know this isn't the healthiest thing to do, but if this is how I have to live, if this is my solution, I'll just do it. And I remember knowing that it wasn't right, but throughout the day, I became obsessed with, I just need a drink to relieve me of this pain. And it worked until it didn't. And so how old were you when you discovered, uh uh-oh, this is becoming a problem? Like how long did you drink before it became the problem? 
you know, it became the problem probably, you know, around 15. I mean, at that young of an age. Wow. Oh, yeah, I was I dropped out of high school and ran away from home and lived in a, you know, flop house of grown men with underage runaway girls. Mm. And we did drugs and, you know, multitude of horrible things happened there until the police broke down the whole apartment and busted the whole place with helicopters and got us out of there. But I still, I had no value. I had no self-worth. So I'm going to be honest with you. I was 34 when I actually got clean and sober for the final time. I really never looked at what was happening to me and thought, this is bad. I just kept running from myself. As I kept running from my childhood and my shame and then the wreckage I was causing in my own path, it just kept growing behind me. And I just kept needing more and more and more and more, Mm -hmm. you know? And the more you don't face your pain, the larger it grows. Mm -hmm. And running from your pain, it will never work. You will never outrun it. (laughs) It'll always catch up with you. And in fact, that is when, gosh, I was in my 40s. No, I was in my 30s as well. It was after my motorcycle accident and I was stuck in the hospital bed. And I realized for the first time how I had been running my whole life from pain. Mm-hmm. I had yeah. been running from the abuse, from my abusive relationship with my ex-husband, from my divorce, from so many things. I had literally been running and stuffing it down and not dealing with it. And until we really step up and see eye to eye with that trauma, it's going to affect our relationships, our health, the way we view the world, our work. So if we're running for anything, there might be some people listening today that they're like, oh, well, I never went through that or I never, you know, I never (laughs) did. But what is it? And, you know, ask yourself, what is it in your life that you are running from that you're not facing? Because you said it, it will always catch up to you and it just grows and grows until we take a look at it. Well, what made you go ahead and finally take a look at what was going on at that traumatic experience? Well, I think sobriety for one, you Mm -hmm. know, I was so consumed in drugs and alcohol that it worked and I kept the beast quiet. You know, and that's what I call my shame. It's a beast. It was a beast inside of me that, you know, filled every cell in my body by that time. And so when I got sober, you know, I was in a lot of pain and recovery. I mean, a lot. Because the only tools I've ever really known were drugs and alcohol. Those were, Mm -hmm. you know, my go-tos. So when I removed those, it was like I was a raw, open mess. I don't even know how I hung on to that sobriety, but I just held on you know, by the grace of God, you know, Mm. that I stayed. And I'm so grateful that I stayed. It became apparent to me, all these nightmares and memories and PTSD and all this stuff was just coming up. And I just thought, I cannot live this way the rest of my life. Like here Mm -hmm. I've saved, I've salvaged my physical life by sobriety. But now there's so much underneath that surface that is just boiling. And I cannot I have to go back a minute because there might be people listening because I know for me, you know, I was drinking and hiding my drinking and no one knew. My husband just retired, but he was a California highway patrol lieutenant. He used to arrest people who would drink and drive. 
Wow. I was hiding my drinking from him, from friends and family. No one knew how bad I was really hurting emotionally and physically. And I hit it. So there might be somebody listening that is struggling with, you know, they're maybe drinking too much. Maybe this is sparking them to think, uh oh, I'm drinking every day. Or the way I drink is I'm obsessed about it. I have one drink and then I just want another one and another one. How did you get sober? What happened that allowed you to go, enough is enough. I've got to get sober. And and I know because you shared it when I heard you do your amazing talk, because you're such an incredible speaker, but share with other people who might be thinking, I need to get sober. I just need help. How did you do that? Well, I'm going to share my story, but you don't have to go down the road I went. So I happened to also be a heroin and meth addict and I was homeless, you know, eating from garbage cans and, you know, talking to myself and like you'd see in a movie, that was me, you know? Um, you guys, to see her, I can see her beautiful <laughs> face. It's an amazing transformation from where you were to you're sitting here and no one would ever imagine just what you have been through because you glow. When people see you, like, I want what you have. What is she doing? Because you're beautiful on the inside and out. I just had to share that with listeners. So they go over and take a look at how gorgeous you are on your Instagram. And I will be sharing my photos that I spoke with you about, but I just received a lot of booking photos from the times I was arrested, the times when I was absolutely wishing for death. And it is heartbreaking to see, you know, that uh, it speaks to the power of recovery and the power of facing your pain, Mm -hmm. you know, that nobody is too far gone. So for me, you know, I ended up in prison and I think it's very similar to you being in your hospital bed. I was for, I was stuck. Okay. So I could not run. I couldn't get away from myself. I was forced to just sit with all this pain, you know, and I did use in prison and drink in prison, but it was a lot more, you know, fewer and further in between. But I remember halfway through my prison sentence, I had a divine intervention. You know, I don't know, a sensation came over my entire body and I was looking out this window and I had absolutely nothing to show for myself at 34, nothing. And I just felt and heard these four words all throughout my whole entire being. It just said, this is your life. And it finally, a tiny spark, ignited in my heart that finally believed just a little bit that I didn't want to die like that. Mm. And at that point, I couldn't see much for my life in the future. I didn't think I was capable of very much. However, there was just something ignited in me that I just didn't want to die as a transient, you Mm. know, out in a field somewhere that someone's trying to figure out the identity of. And you know, that's that's, all we need is that little spark of hope just that little spark. And once we find it, then we have to find ways of making it bigger ourselves, and by other people fanning our flames and igniting that spark even more. And that is what you have done because to look at your life now, it's unbelievable. The transformation. Yeah. It doesn't hit me all the time until I, you know, and I speak about this all the time, but I have to kind of look, take a step 
back and go, wow, like, cannot even believe this is my life today. I can't believe how I feel today, which is the most important thing. I feel so free today. And, you know, I think for me, my faith is important. I think that my honesty is important and just sharing, even when it's an embarrassing moment or maybe something I'm nervous people are going to think, oh, you know, like that's way out, you know, but if you look at the similarities, we are all so connected, you know, mm-hmm. you and I may be completely different, you know, stories or maybe we have similar parts, whatever, but the feelings underneath are the same, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I was hiding in my bathroom looking for a vein. Ooh, yuck. But maybe somebody else was hiding in their closet, you know, with their wine bottle before their husband got home. Mm-hmm. That feeling of shame is the same, mm-hmm. you know, and none of us, have to feel that way. That's my biggest mission is just to encourage people to come out of that darkness that you're not alone, that there's so many communities out there that people are just healing from so many things. It's just amazing to me. Yeah. And I love that you talked about honesty because the truth will set you free. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I started getting real honest about what was really going on, I felt like there was a weight lifted off of me. I could finally let go of that shame. And shame is a beast. And, you know, like I said, you encouraged me and inspired me. You do something on Fridays on your Instagram where you share women and their stories of recovery. And when you asked me, I was a little bit nervous because I hadn't talked about it much on my social media. And just sharing my story a little bit through, you know, social media, it made me feel a little more free. Here's the thing though. I think that, you know, I get a question, like I recently had someone who went through a traumatic injury. They did try to commit suicide and they wanted to be on the podcast and share their story, but they wanted to use an alias and I said, here's the deal. You have to do so much recovery on your own and feel really have a strong foundation before you can start to share it on bigger platforms. It took me years to really heal a lot of trauma, go to therapy, read books, take a look at what I was doing every day before I was able to share. So if anybody's listening, really start reaching out to someone that you feel like you can really trust to share. And I think that's really important or to find a 12 step program. Yeah. I know for me, I needed a place that I felt safe to share. And little by little, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. There are a lot of people out there that are feeling the same way that I am and they recovered. So I know that I can too. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what you really show people is that they can, that there's hope. You're a hope dealer. You went from (laughs) drugs to being a hope dealer. That's what Yeah, right? Yeah. It's amazing. How long were you confined to a jail cell? Well, I was in prison for four years. So when I got out, I had been introduced to the 12 steps. You know, like I said, I was in and out of jail lots of times and sentenced to outpatients. And, you know, part of those is usually going to 12 steps. And I'd been introduced to the 12 steps, you know, several times throughout my addiction. And when I got out of prison, I went back. And it is true that, you know, it's so important to find a group of women, 
if you're a woman, you know, that you feel comfortable with, you know, and if you go to a meeting and you don't feel comfortable there, find another one. There's so mm -hmm. many. A yeah. lot of people give it one try and they're like, oh, I didn't, there was somebody there that was sharing horrible stuff. Well, find another one. <laughs> yeah. Find another one. That's so true. And, you know, I know for me also, when I finally summoned up the courage to ask for help, I reached out to somebody who I knew was in recovery and I said, Hey, I need help. And for me, there was so much shame behind that because I was, you know, sponsored by Nike at one time. I was a right. fitness trainer. I had trainers that worked for me. I went from that to all of a sudden drinking every day. You know, I come from a family that there's a lot of addiction in and I thought I was so different. Well, I wasn't. I ended up being exactly like them. You know, my baby brother is actually sitting on death row right now right. in Texas. His addiction and drug <sighs> alcohol led him down that path. So look, that didn't happen to me yet. You know, right? we all have an opportunity. It doesn't matter. You don't have to hit rock bottom where I did or where Jen did. You can start right now getting better. And I know the first person that I asked, because she was in recovery, she was a client of mine. And she said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to help you. I'm going to take you to a meeting. And I never got a call back from her. And so mm -hmm. I waited like a week and I, I Googled 12-step program. And I found a meeting that I could go to where I wasn't, you know, my husband wouldn't know about it. <laughs> right, right. School. And that was hard, but I found a meeting. So if you're struggling, if you ask somebody and they don't help you right away, there's always a way to figure it out. You can Google it. You can ask someone else. There's always a way. So don't let just because one no. person didn't help you keep going, keep reaching out. And sometimes it's easier to ask for help to somebody you don't know very well. So whether they DM you on Instagram or DM yes. you on Instagram, do something today if you're struggling. Like I said, when you talked about being in prison, it really hit home because of my baby brother. My other yes. brother's been in and out of jail. And so I think by sharing your story, it really touches a lot of people because there are so many of us that even though we haven't been in jail, we know somebody who has. And right. so now to look at you today, you've recovered. You have two beautiful children. Tell us about how you started to let go of that shame, how you did it, and how you started to build your life up step by step, because that has led you to a path where you not only share it, but you wrote a book about it. When did you decide you wanted to write a book? Well, I've always been a writer. I mean, I've always loved writing. As a young girl, I wrote a lot, you know, and I wish I had those journals. Uh you know, being homeless for as many years as I was, I've lost like everything. Mm. You know, I don't have any memorabilia. It's such a bummer. But I, wrote, I always wrote a lot. You know, my addiction, I actually lost the ability to read. I could not put words together, sentences together. And so part of, you know, my early recovery was learning how to read again. I literally had to relearn how to read, which is just mind blowing to me. And then that's amazing. Um, that's yeah. unbelievable. I had yeah. used so much and lived in, you know, the underworld for so long that, yeah, I really actually thought I was never going to be able to read again. It was very scary, but I did. I learned how to read again. And, and how did you do that? Did you just little by little start to 
take one day at a time because I swear, even though our stories are different, they're so similar. It's like, I had to learn how to walk again. Right. Exactly. You had to learn how to read again. I did. Slowly and how did you and do that? You want to know something really funny? So I actually <laughs> did like hooked on phonics. <laughs> did you? I love I, that. Secretly, <laughs> secretly I did. And the picking up, you know, learning how to put the letters together again and then the words to make sentences. And then it was the reading comprehension. I would read something and it'd be gone. I mean, my brain was just, you know, addiction affects your brain big time. It was embarrassing and I didn't tell a lot of people and I did it quietly, but slowly you know, I started putting myself back together again. And, you know, my recovery has been a slow process. And I think that's important for people to know that that's okay. You know, not mm -hmm. everybody, you know, heals super fast and is like celebrating two weeks in sobriety with like mocktails on the beach. Some of us are barely able to even get out of the bed. Some of us are crying our eyes out 24 seven. I did I a lot. I cried, I think. Because for so long, I didn't feel, I tried to shut those feelings down. And I yep. was also made fun of by my stepfather when I would cry. Mm -hmm. And so I learned and he would say, I gotcha. He would push mm -hmm. me to the point and then he'd say, yep, I knew I'd take you down. And so I learned to me that showing that vulnerability was weakness. And so yep. for years, I didn't cry. And so when I finally got into recovery and began to feel the feels, it was like the floodgates were open and I cried and cried and cried. For and sure. So I see people in recovery and when people are able to put together a few sentences and share their story in a meeting, I'm blown away because I was a freaking mess. Me too. I was a long a time. I always tell, I, I always say Google image golem from Lord of the Rings. That is like lit. <laughs> I promise you, that is exactly how I looked and felt for the first few years. And I think that that's more common than not. And I think that it's okay. And, you know, everyone needs to really walk through it. There's no way around it. And I've learned so much in these eight and a half years I've been in recovery. And the biggest lesson I've learned is that the power to, to heal our lives is in the pain that we're so desperate to avoid. And so yeah. sitting with pain is not always fun, mm -hmm. but the freedom that comes after it is so like intoxicating. It's its own intoxication mm -hmm. that for me, I never, ever want to try and shove down pain again because I've mm -hmm. experienced the after, you know, what happens after the glow mm -hmm. up. <laughs> and so, you know, I've sat with a lot of pain and it took me a few years to really travel back through my life you know I worked the steps and I went through my wreckage and of my own wreckage and then explain I, and what the steps are because there may be people that are listening that are struggling and they don't know what the steps are okay. like I, so I we speak the same language but there may right. be people listening that are like the steps well what are the steps and how do I get the steps like I honestly wish that everybody could do 12 steps, I think the world would be a better place because it really right. teaches you to be a better person in society. For <laughs> Just, me, the 12 steps is all about self-reflection and self-awareness. And I, I've got, man, I'm a self-reflection, you know, junkie. I love that. That's my jam. And they actually have, I've seen it on Amazon, a 12 steps for everybody book. They do. They actually, somebody wrote a 12 steps for everybody. And I agree, you know, 
I personally love the 12 steps and there's smart recovery, refuge recovery, celebrate recovery. There's all kinds of communities. For me, I did go to AA and I worked the steps, which is just, you know, you're learning to admit that you have a problem and then, you know, surrender and accept help and you work through you know, the wreckage, a lot of us do things that we're not proud of in our addictions and are maybe, you know, hurt people's feelings financially, our children, whatever it happens to be. And I went through all that and I felt, you know, a ton better, but there was always heaviness in me. You know, I, every time I travel back through my life, I end up on the floor in front of my mom's bedroom door, closed mm-hmm. door, even past the sexual abuse. It always ends up, you know, the mom issue, the mother wound, the hole in my heart that's shaped as my mother. Mm. And I was like, you know, I became pregnant with my son and I was terrified that I was going to be a mom like my mother. And I had no idea how to be a mother. I'd never seen it. It's not something I grew up with. And I had a multitude of other fears from being sexually abused. And anyways, it really pushed me to dig super deep into my mother wound and into my childhood. And I just didn't want my children to suffer the way I had suffered. Mm -hmm. And I still do a lot of inner child work and inner child healing. And I do meditation on a picture of myself as a little girl. Mm -hmm. And I close my eyes and I imagine that she's there and I pick her up off the floor And I hold her and I twirl her in the sunshine and I tell her Mm. she is perfect and love and light and capable and that none of that is her fault anymore or never was her fault and that she doesn't have to be afraid anymore together. We can walk through anything. And I do this every morning to this day. I remember the first time I went back and looked at my inner child, I had somebody walk me through like a trauma healing and they walked Mm -hmm. me back to that time. I just broke in tears. And I think it's so important that we all heal that inner child so we can step forward with strength. And the parent that I always wanted, you know, I said, my mom is a good mom. My dad's a good guy. They just did the best they could with the tools that they had. Exactly. And, you know, and I've healed my relationships with my dad. My stepfather actually passed away of testicular cancer, of all things. I remember you told me that. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I hate to clap, but (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing, right? Karma. Yeah. Well, I just, all that you have overcome and, you know, you showed me the picture of your mugshot before we started mm, the podcast. I will be posting, yes. And it's just so inspiring. And you are changing lives. You're giving women the courage to step out of that shame. And you're giving them hope that they can have the life that they have always imagined. So yes. thank you for that. Your book is beautiful. How can people best get in touch with you? So, you know, I do a lot on Instagram and Resurrection of Me is my name everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, I even have a Pinterest. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, you know, and I am working on my website now. So that'll be coming. This is, I just wrote my book. I just published it like eight months ago. So I'm like slowly, you know, I'm writing a second book. I I know you'd said you're working on other books and that is amazing because writing a book is not easy. It wasn't easy for me anyway. It took me two years to write my book. How long did it take you you to write your book? 
Well, you know, my book is like a short read and I kind of intentional. I'm going to have a book of five short reads that'll come together like a series. And it's just going to be all about my healing process. And it took me about, you know, a year to write it. And then, you know, the whole editing process and the book mm -hmm. cover. And, you know, I'm like, I'm from the streets. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, you're talking to me about like PDFs and I'm like, what, you know, but I've learned so much, you know, I mean, I could actually build a website now. It's like, wow. But, well, that you know, in I, itself is inspiring because like you said, you're from the streets. For me, I when I decided to write my book, I had to buy a computer because I was from the gym floor or the dance yeah, floor. Right? You know, I right? never, and I remember the first time I had to send a picture through email and I was using my husband's laptop and I was like, well, how do you attach a picture to an email? I had no idea. And he's like, oh my God, what do you want now? You don't know how to do that. So I went out and bought my own computer, yes. took a class at Apple, and I'm still trying to figure things out. And so Me too. I just, yeah. And I want people to know it is figure outable. You can figure it out. If I I'm can learn how you. to do a podcast, you can learn how to do anything. For sure, <laughs> man. I'm telling you for sure. I mean, I Google, I, to this day, sometimes I got my phone, I got my laptop in front of me and my phone here, Googling how to do this. I even Googled how to breathe through contractions for my daughter. <laughs> I was in the hospital bed, how to breathe through contractions. I mean, man, I, I reached out anywhere, anytime. Well, my husband Googled limb salvage. He actually Amazing. Googled limb salvage and he found my doctor because I had that 1% chance of saving my right. leg. He found a doctor that was willing to try to save it by Googling limb salvage. And so I'm telling you. <laughs> It's amazing We're, what the, yeah, it's crazy. It's, and that's I think it's such a beautiful time to get into recovery or to start healing because no matter what it is that you're struggling with, you can Google it or you can put it in the search bar on Instagram or mm -hmm. Facebook. You will find communities of women or men or whatever everywhere for every single thing, and you will never be alone or in the dark about it. And it's so beautiful, you know? I mean, if you're struggling with anything, please DM me. I answer every single one. I'm not a therapist yet, although I'd like to go back to school. You I will. Feel, I know I you will because you I will, yeah. 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 But I can refer you. I have like an enormous community and, you know, I can refer you to so many people that can help you. You know, please, like, I always thought I had to do things by myself and hide my mess because mm -hmm. it was too ugly for anyone to look at. And that almost killed me. I just wish, and I want to encourage every woman, every person to just have a little courage and reach out to somebody, mm -hmm. even quietly, because mm -hmm. you do not have to hide your mess because mm -hmm. your mess is what is going to free you. It's going to be your message. It is going to be your message. Exactly. Amen. Boom. Yeah. That was it right there. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because I really think there are so many people out there that do hide how oh. bad it really is or how much pain they're really in emotionally or physically or the for trauma sure. that they're trying to, you know, stuff down and you give people hope and thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show, especially look, you guys, we're recording this. It's Saturday morning at seven o'clock in the morning. And she said yes to being on the show. So thank you so much. You guys, please read her book. It is The Shape of a Woman. And it's amazing. It will give you hope. 
and it will show you you're not alone and that you can thrive no matter what circumstances are thrown your way, that you can rise above it. So Jen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I adore you to pieces. Seriously. Oh, I love you, girl. You are my soul sister and I hope to see you soon. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us this week on True Grit and Grace podcast. If you like it, please rate it or share it with your friends. That would help too. If you're not yet on the newsletter list, come over to AmberlyLago.com and jump on it. While you're there, you can grab a free downloadable gratitude journal and you might just want to check out my book or even check out my monthly motivational membership. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week.